you know, getting a little obsessive about when I'm working with something, if I don't know how it works, I stay on it until I do. And very often, it's a classic way of being for a lot of people in different industries where it's not the destination, it's the journey. And I would just as soon be making <laughs> making and building something and have something at the very end that didn't work as long as it was a great time making it. Or, or, or that it works and it doesn't do what I was expecting to. That's another wonderful surprise. Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robertazzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Yo, 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 it's your boy, B. Tazzy. Hi, this is Bill Robertazzi trying to do the intro in Tony's absence. Our guest this episode is Bill Brovold. The phrase Renaissance man comes to mind when describing Bill, whether roasting his own coffee, baking his own bread, both of which he gladly shares, or building a 16-foot Aeolian wind harp, or repairing a barn door. Bill tells us how he finds as much joy in the journey as the destination. Bill is an accomplished musician, visual artist, and educator who also builds musical instruments for himself and others. We discuss how his deep-seated desire to know how things work has helped him acquire a wide variety of skills and explore how artists and engineers are most alike due to their problem-solving abilities. Finally, we learn where the awesome sound of Lance Beaters in Star Wars comes from. Enjoy. Well, we are happy to welcome Bill Brovel to the show. Good to see you, Bill. Nice to see you. Good to see you both. Welcome, Bill. So Bill and I met, it's the two Bills and a Tony show, and Bill and I met uh, earlier this summer when uh, I was fortunate to be hosted at his place in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley. And for a couple of weeks there in a sweet little uh, apartment next to a workshop where there were mysterious things going on. And uh, the more I got to know Bill, I recognized the uh, artist engineer in him because there were uh, all kinds of parts and pieces and, and things getting put together and taken apart. So I thought he'd be a great guest for the show. Bill, you're an artist or, and have been for many years, uh, a visual and musician, as well as an educator. But this, uh, this part of you where you're, you're building your own instruments and from found objects, from lots of different materials, that seemed pretty engineering oriented to me and pretty technical. So I was kind of curious about that journey. And uh, if you could tell us a little bit about that, and how that's come together. Well, when, when I was in school studying art in the late 70s and early 80s, I started doing a lot of building so I could afford to live while I was in college and being an artist, uh, I had a shop and I would, I would build things and people would ask me to build stranger and stranger things all the time. And I was having more fun doing that than hanging sheetrock or build framing out or, you know, renovating apartments in New York. So I, I started and at a very early time, I was uh, 
building the sets and props for videos for very early MTV and, um, you know, a few films and, and that. And, and I ended up just making things that made noise as well. And as, a, as an offshoot of that, you know, so I, was, I had my music instruments there and I would build things that uh, maybe have strings. And then, of course, I had to put a pickup on it. And then one day I wanted to play that instrument with another instrument. So I had to build a, a machine that would play that instrument for me. So, you know, I have some things that are powered by little barbecue motors that turn very slowly. And I have different rheostatic settings on different motors that play and pluck and strum and buzz. So, yeah, that sort of took me into that world of creating things that make sound. So you said when you were in school, but it sounded like you have a natural aptitude for this. Were you building things before school as well? Or when this opportunity came up, you realized you kind of had a, a real knack for this? Well, more than a knack for it, I, have, um, I, I just have a very strong love of sound. And the sound, you know, from crickets I hear outside, I go out and I get free concerts almost every night when it's hot and humid. And um, one of my very first introductions to like phase music or the, the avant-garde were two chainsaws where I grew up out West that were each on a separate side of the road. And they were both running at the same speed. They were both cutting and they were at high torque and uh, high, high RPMs. They were almost identical to pitch, but they were just out enough that they started phasing. And just the, that, that sense of hearing the different tones between the two was like a whole opening for me of sound possibility. Mm. And so I started working, you know, at, at, at that point, I started working with grinders on metal and tuning the metal. And all it did was give me bad hearing, but I loved it. It made some pretty cool sounds. And then, of course, the plasmatics came up with cutting a guitar in half with a chainsaw. Mm-hmm on stage, which they did not get from me, but there were other people working with power tools. And there's a large community of people out there who are immensely creative with sound possibilities. So I like, I like being a part of that group. So you mentioned the avant-garde and, and uh, you're working with chainsaws and uh, uh, power tools or, or it doesn't sound like you're going for mainstream success. When you're when uh, when you when you're working with that type of thing, it is coming out of kind of a passion and a love and a creativity, you know. And uh, I imagine if you're working with steel grinders and chainsaws, you're not imagining I'm going to be the next pop superstar. No, that has never actually crossed my mind. <laughs> but I love. I mean, like you know, I I I have done recordings and put out records of some pretty extreme things that have electric guitars with all all high E strings on them, for instance. And that gives a real mechanical sound when you get whaling on those. And especially if you have three or four of them going. So I like that sound, but I also, you know, I like I like the popular sounds, mm-hmm. you know, as well. I like I like, you know, I love the Beatles. I mm-hmm. love the, you know, different kinds of pop music and rock music sure, and sure. classical and even yeah. jazz. Yeah. Well, I've listened to uh, recently uh, one of your more recent recordings. Um, 
the double-celled organism. And it was lovely to listen to beautiful ambient atmospheric music that you could work to and just put on in the background. So it's, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, so I know you're not all chainsaws and steel grinders. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to get back to what Tony was saying, getting back to that, uh, that kind of ability the, to, to, to work with tools, even most people, I think is what Tony was saying, wouldn't think about taking things apart. I mean, where'd you acquire a lot of this knowledge to work with? Because you didn't, you didn't go to engineering school. You didn't particularly go to a trade school or something like that. I imagine Um, it's just all kind of uh, learning on the job type of things and curiosity. Uh, Mostly, you know, and, and, um, you know, getting a little obsessive about when I'm working with something, if I don't know how it works, I stay on it until I do. And very often, you know, it's it's a it's a classic way of being for a lot of people in different industries where it's not the destination, it's the journey. And I would just as soon be making <laughs> making and building something and have something at the very end that didn't work as long as it was a great time making it or 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 that it works and it doesn't do what i was expecting too that's another wonderful surprise mm. so i mean my my pile of unfinished projects greatly exceeds my you know collection of finished ones <laughs> yeah the the wondering how something works i think is definitely the uh, engineering element i have a uh, uh, one of my older brothers who's a uh, truly an engineer i mean really i don't know if he's is interested in any kind of art at all that i could figure out i've always you know what about this what about fiction what about music doesn't seem to but boy if he's staring at something whether it's a motor or something about his house or i could just see him being like i don't just accept that it works that way i want to know how it works right our theme here is artists and engineers and how do you see you're obviously a little bit of both and, mm-hmm. uh, and been around, I imagine, people of both mindsets. Where do you see them converging and diverging? Right. Solving problems. I mean, when, when you think about, when you think about even, even a, a, someone like Picasso, a very famous, or Andy Warhol could be a great example. Even though he didn't actually do physically a lot of the work that is attributed to him, he was overseeing it and told people what to do and how to do it. And then you have designers and engineers and, you know, the, the man who made the Segway is a famous example and, and uh, an assortment of people who make things. There's just a similarity to, to paint something abstract, to make it look right is really hard. To paint something that is in the physical world right in front of you, to make that look really good is not as hard to me. Mm. So that's 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 a real challenge, and that's like the artist and the engineer thinking like, you know, I want to I want to make something that does a specific thing, and I don't know how to do it. So you have to learn a lot of steps and procedures, and make a lot of mistakes and keep doing it, and one of my great influences was the painter Michael Goldberg, who um, he would sit in front of this thing that was an abstract painting and would look at big brush marks that looked like just big brush marks randomly across a canvas. And he'd say, 
God, you know, and just looking at that and that doesn't quite belong there like that. And I think to a lot of people, they wouldn't see that. But at the very end of it, there's something about his paintings that were stunning. Mm. And it was because of that amount of creating something and it had to be just right in his mind. And that's, that's a unique path. I don't know if that made any sense because that was, that was getting into pretty abstract thinking there, which <laughs> I lose myself quickly. No, it's, it was well, interesting because it's, it's, uh, it made me think of a couple of things. And one is a, one of our uh, earlier guests uh, made me think of something. Uh, one of our guests, Sunil Garg said, and, and he said, is, is something art or craft? And he said, there's a difference between art and craft and kind of a little bit what you do, you described, you know, craft, you know, if you you can get very good at just duplicating what you see and that's almost craft mm -hmm. where art is this other expression that's no one else has ever created and is so unique and so uh, distinct. And that's, it reminded me of that. Right. Well, from my view on that as well, arts and crafts, they have a lot of areas where they overlap. And art, another a teacher of mine in college once talked about making art versus making crafts. And he said, the better the art is, usually the least uh, use it has in society. <laughs> the better the craft is, it has some function, mm -hmm. you know. And he, he, was, he was firmly convinced and, and kind of influenced me in that thinking that Something can be as you know, grand with having no practical purpose other than its aesthetics. That's great because that actually also talks almost to the divergence of the artist engineer. The artist, the engineer, often the, the function is really it's functional to really solve something, right? Br building a bridge. I mean, it could be beautiful and grand, but it really is to solve this very useful thing just crossed over the Rio Grande Bridge here. I recently mm -hmm. walked across it and we're like, wow, you know. And it's, it's amazing, but it's very functional, very useful, where, uh, as you say, like an abstract painting can make you feel something, but maybe uh, not as useful. And there's aspects of bridges that have no use. You know, you look at all the bridges made during the WPA and they all have the eagles on them on the ends. There's no, I mean, I guess it's a political <laughs> or a nationalistic kind of statement, you know, mm -hmm. but not a lot of reason for those. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just aesthetically, yeah, some some pleasure to it. Making a statement, yes. So I, I think we said kind of the overlap of artist and engineer is the mentality to solve a problem. So I think we understand that from the engineering side. We mentioned this example of building bridges and functional things. Creating music, creating visual art. Can you give us an example of how you're solving problems there? Solving a creative problem um, instead of art as as creating a craft is producing like something you know pleasurable or or something kind of uh, for fun what's what kind of creative artistic problems do you see uh, that you're solving and, and great question um a lot of things that i make i make for other people like i i built a an aeolian harp which is a wind powered harp um it's 16 feet tall and it's up at the clark art institute in massachusetts and it's outside, and um, I had to create it to, to build this so that when the, the you know everything from the distance of the strings from the board 
the height of the strings, how far up they had to go to where they could uh, uh, pick up what's called a laminar flow, which is a non, non-turbulent wind because the strings won't vibrate very well if the wind is tumbling. Like you can't put a fan in front of an, an alien harp and make it work properly because the, the wind is moving to just too roughly and, and that. So that was a lot of challenge for me. And then how to make it and make it look cool and make it look beautiful. I mean, it's, it's big, a 16 foot tall instrument made out of cherry wood that had to fit inside of a aluminum resonator and um, the tension of the strings had to be the same. And it, there were a lot of, there were a lot of aspects to it that were all about engineering and um, little science. And then I was out there with my hand planer taking her down, you know, where the, <laughs> the, the jointed wood came together because it was 20 some inches wide. And so, uh, yeah, it was a, there was a whole thing of my carpentry skills, my musical skills, and whatever engineering skills I possess, and just basic, uh, and musical skills. So there was a real, it was a real challenge. Yeah, I like what you said about making it look beautiful, because you could have, it's just, part of it is just getting someone to get to work, but maybe a, a kind of a deeper artistic mindset is, we hear often about making something elegant or in your case, beautiful, like really refining it. And, and then you discover the, the concept of what I think is beautiful. It doesn't always fit what other people think is beautiful. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and my love of industrial things, because I work with so many industrial things, you know, and I had turnbuckles and cabling on it and I had it wound up properly. And, you know, I made uh, aluminum bridges. I made actually a cherry bridge, um, a cherry saddle with an aluminum bridge in it. And that's where the, the saddle is a bigger piece of wood that the bridge, the little aluminum strip that holds the strings fits into. And um, so everything had to look well together and match and you know, look, look museum quality. Mm. I just talked to the museum director and they were out there uh, getting some people to record it. And they were asking me about tuning it. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's a whole different issue, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you have to, you learn with something like that, an alien harp, when you play an instrument, say a guitar or a regular harp, when you pluck it, that's the fundamental. That's the note. Alien harps are not touched or plucked. The wind blows through them. So they don't ever play the note you play. They play the overtones and the overtones only. So tuning it is not so important. And I couldn't get that through to anybody. Like you don't need to tune it, you know, just keep it tight enough. So it vibrates to a sound you like. Mm -hmm. That's great. So now been doing this a while, when you were a young artist in your twenties, did you ever imagine you'd be building 16 foot harps? Or a better question is if you if you're able to go back and tell yourself your 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 young 20-something-year-old artist self, give yourself advice on your career and your your art, what would that advice be? Uh right, that's a good question. Well, I'm really good at giving advice. I'm not good at following my own advice or taking other people's advice. 
So that's that's a that's what would be one of the tougher questions. I don't know. I mean, there there are aspects about what I what I do and what I make that I always felt very intimidated by charging proper fees for it. And I don't know if that I don't know if that falls into the category of self worth or uh, you know you get to a point where I should be making more money off my art and music than I do building someone's barn doors mm-hmm. when their house is up for sale. So it can look mm-hmm. good, but that's the case. So yeah. I, re- I resigned myself very early on that I would never have to answer to anybody if I made my living off of being a carpenter or a builder. So that was my decision you know, and choice. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I would give myself any advice because I sure wouldn't take it. <laughs> I would just keep bumbling through, you know, um, you know, have more fun. Have more fun. That's good advice. That's good advice. Can I ask a slightly related question? Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, you've had a love of sound since you were younger. Mm-hmm. And then Bill mentioned, uh, Bill Robert Tatsi, uh, mentioned you're also an educator. Um, I think, uh, I believe, preteen kids in music. Primarily preteen, yeah. Uh, so my question is, what, what are the kind of things that you're trying to convey to those kids in terms of, I believe it's a, some, of the, some of the things you're saying, the craft of music versus something more abstract, more something more fundamental around sound. Like, how are you trying to explain music or open up music to the kids that you teach? Well, one of the things that's really wonderful to the kids that I teach uh, is that many of them with special needs. And so their approach to things are going to be unique. They're not necessarily, they're not quite as pop oriented you know, I don't like to generalize too much, but it, it's something you can. They're, they're much more uh, interested in grabbing the abstract, which I found really wonderful. Certain people, I mean, some of the some of the kids that were considered special needs were brilliant and hard to identify for anything. But you know, two a set of twins, identical twins, that were somewhat. Uh, on the spectrum of autism and they uh, they were as technically proficient as kids many years above them and yet all they wanted to do was make teeny tiny one inch Super Mario Brother characters (laughs) and they were genius at it I've never seen and finally after a while you know, we, we would, they would just, that's what they wanted to build. So it got them colored clay and that's what they built. Then they built some other things and they built some things that made sound and noise. And it, but it started with just their huge output of Super Mario Brother characters. I mean, we're talking a one inch tall, uh, whatever their names are, Mario with his suspenders and the buttons on his suspenders, which are not a 32nd of an inch around. <laughs> Oh yeah, little, you know, little crazy things like that that I just thought was genius, you know, and brilliant. So that was how I worked with the kids. I let them, I let them do it, and I would play them. I would show them and play them sound effects. Like I'd say, "Hey, do you know in Star Wars when you see the little speeders go by?" And they, of course, all knew what those were. I said that was a, a man called the Foley artist or a sound effects artist heard a sound coming out of a garage in Los Angeles and went over there. It's a guy with a broken air compressor. And he knew that was the sound he wanted for those speeders. And he gave the guy $500 for a broken air compressor 
that was not worth 50 bucks and uh, bought it from him. And that became the sound there. And you would play, I would make different, we would make sound effects and different things with, you know, a, a block of wood is how they often imitate uh, the sound of a fight scene of a punch in a movie. And so we would go through that and they loved that. That was very fun. It's a very concrete way of thinking about sound and music. And then I would play them music that had those things in it. And now they've moved it from a, a film sound effect to music, in, in, you know, in, from that garden, they've taken the, the route in between the two. That's great. It sounds very, very similar to what you described. It's very, these used to work concrete, but very experiential versus kind of theory about how to kind of learn and experience music. Right. What you're providing to uh, to your students and uh, what you described about how you would pick up construction of instruments and set up yourself about years ago. Yes. I don't even know how to go any more detail on that because it's just, it just came out like every one of the kids that would be so unique on what, what they needed to learn and which was beautiful because it was like the ultimate challenge for me is with every one of the kids was an entire different class <laughs> you know so yeah it was, it was and great for them too right i yes. mean in terms of learning being able to learn in your way and and in your interest is is so much more powerful so that's right terrific. that's terrific well I, I was fortunate enough that the, you know, the way I approached it was I don't, you know, we're not going to everybody get a plastic whistle or a flute and at the end of the year know how to play hot cross buns. <laughs> um, because for one thing, these, a lot of the kids I worked with at the end of the year would not know how to play hot cross buns, <laughs> but they might have composed a piece of music, written a graphic score, drawn out a graphic score, tell their friends how to play things they made with us, one string and a bent piece of wood and another person clicking their fingers and clapping their hands and so on. And they, um, they would have composed a piece of music. Super, super. And, and th thanks for that story about the Star Wars. Because that is one of the sound effects from Star Wars that has always stuck with me, the speeders. So now I actually know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's such a great sound. And it's always, I was always like, that is such a great sound. <laughs> I, I wish he'd found one of my broken air compressors. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. Great, great. So I'm going to go back to, uh, to advice again. And this one, you don't have to give it to yourself. You can, because I think you already, uh, it's a little bit of a theme that we touched on one or two other people. And I think about it, but you, you certainly, or someone, a couple more years of experience, maybe, right, than the, the original question. And you're still creating and creative. And we've had that conversation with some of our other guests who were, you know, a couple of years of experience. And how do you stay creative as you get older, as you have, you know, not just doing the same types of music, the same type of whatever, you know, and how do you keep your mind kind of creative and open to, to new ideas, you know, I'm. I, I don't know what it would have, what would be attributed to. You know, some uh, um, some undocumented <laughs> mental condition, but <laughs> you know, but I, I. It's not that I get bored easy. I love I love so many things. I love to go out and listen to the crickets. I love 
noise music. I love punk music. I love jazz. I love my favorite music. I, I have I have little hob- habits I do. Like almost every Sunday morning, I listen to Debussy. I don't know why, but that, the Lemaire. I think I went and saw a concert on a Sunday morning once. That was Debussy's Lemaire, and. I, I can listen to that every morning. So I love that classical music. I used to go to CBGB's and hear punk music. And right down the street, I can remember hearing George Jones performing at the bottom line the same night before I went to CBGB's and heard the Ramones. And so, you know, you do, I just like different things. And so it's easy for me to, as soon as I get bored or done with one thing, I'm on to the next, which is, you know, a little bit why I look like I live in the wreckage of a tornado because I've got, <laughs> you know, these miniature sculptures going on and a couple things I'm fixing around the house and then uh, some instruments I'm building and all of that. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's less of a wide ranging group of interests than a, a very short attention span. And, and I don't see the difference between how I approach making sound as how I approach making visual art mm-hmm. or building something. Yeah. It's all the same. I mean, I, I have just as much fun, even though I grumble about it if it's too much. But like, I I do have a good time, you know, fixing and making things that have a purpose. You know, fixing the deck can be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, working on a new a new guitar with eighteen high E strings on it—that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so yeah, so it's just bouncing all over the place has kept my interests, you know, wide. I think we should advocate for more boredom, uh, which is often, I think, uh, a complaint of today's society. You don't have space to be bored anymore. There's always so much stimulation. Uh, but with, with some boredom, creativity kind of comes out. Oh, you know, can I show you something? Sure. Please. Since we're visual, I mean, um, I'll just grab one of these. I'll grab two. Over during the pandemic, I made, you know, about a hundred of these. Oh, really impressive. And they're little tiny clock sculptures made from clocks, broken pocket watches. I made tons of them. And that was when I couldn't go out and mm. do stuff. And uh, I sat here and I, my father passed away a long time ago. I, I ended up Years later, finding a box of old clock parts, pocket watches. And I just thought, well, rather than do something practical and try to fix them and make them work, I'm going to do the opposite and make them not work and just be cool looking because they're, you know, I just think they're really beautiful. So I built things that are the opposite of how a clock functions and works, and they don't work. They're unfunctional. They're just all about being visual did it when you had a lot of time on your hands. So it's a tribute to uh, time and uh, boredom. Exactly. Well, you know, broken time, not boredom, maybe, but broken time. (laughs) Right. Changing like, well, I have to keep moving and doing things. So, you know, I mean, I I am somebody who wakes up in the morning and I literally pop out of bed going, oh, I've got to get that done. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I'm kind of up and down and moving and working on something that needs to be done immediately. So great. All right. Well, Tony, any uh, last thoughts or comments? Yes. I appreciate the wide ranging conversation. Definitely reflects, I think your wide ranging interests. So 
it's been it's been really great. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you. That was fun. That's a wrap. Hold it. Where's the where's where's the bumper music? Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people and also hit the subscribe button.